Hey everyone, uh, my name is Roanne. Um, I had a little bit, a little introduction prepared, but it's actually been so amazing just standing here worshiping, hearing the songs that were sung so, so well. Thank you so much, worship team. I really think that you really helped us um, worship God well. Um, and also the, the word that Krista brought, it's so relevant to what we've been preparing about. Um, and so, yeah, I really do encourage you to, to hear because I think God is saying something um, tonight. Uh, so I've been really loving this Jesus Encounter series. Um, I've been loving remembering the beauty and the path-changing encounters that Jesus has had with his people in his word. And we've also been having such great conversations about it at Life Group. I can't see Delise and Nomvula. I don't know if they're here today. Oh, hello. Um, yeah, but l last week we had a conversation, and Delise said, um, it's like in every encounter, Jesus holds up a mirror to the person he's talking to. And I really love that, and it made me think more about why I resonate with this encounter I'm going to be sharing about. So I'll be sharing about the story of Jesus and the woman in Samaria, the woman of Samaria. The story has always stood out to me because of how Jesus is unafraid to be alone with her, um, even though she's so separated and so ostracized from her society, and also how he manages to reach her despite all the cultural distance he has to travel as a Jewish man to get there. Um, and everything about my sermon is about how Jesus comes close to us, which I think is so in line with what Christo was sharing, what can separate us from the love of Christ. Um, yeah, it's a beautiful story of Jesus's grace and truth in the context of prejudice and stigma. So you can open your Bibles with me. To, we're going to John 4, verses 1 to 26. It'll also be on the screen behind me if you don't have a Bible with you. Pharisees had heard that Je Oh, wait, maybe I should wait for you to get there. Okay, now it's up. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. His disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty. The water that I give him, I'm in him, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. 
The woman answered him, I have no husband. One you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming where neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. The story has really captivated me in many ways, and there's so much to learn from it. Um, but I'll only speak about two points which have been on my heart. The first is that Jesus comes near to us. He comes close to us. It's about Jesus' intimacy and proximity in the face of stigma. In the book of John, we're often reminded that Jesus is fully human. Um, John 1 verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Even in this passage, we are reminded of his human limitations. He was wearied by his journey. It's important to remember this because the extent of his humanness makes the beauty of his sinlessness more stark. Two main reasons men were not supposed to talk to women in public. One was internal fear of temptation, and the other was external fear. It was seen as flirting, and their reputations could be, danger to, could be damaged. Like there were places where it was forbidden to even talk to your wife in public. As, it, as the story goes on, it is revealed that the woman in this story was wrapped in levels of stigma. She was a Samaritan, meaning she was the descendant of political rebels against Israel, ceremonially unclean, seen as ethnically and racially inferior, and religiously heretical. She was a woman, culturally seen as below men, and even among other Samaritan women, she was ostracized because she was sexually and morally unclean. Yet this is the longest encounter in the Gospel of John between an individual and Jesus. The fact that Jesus was so unafraid to be alone with this woman for so long and speak openly with her is amazing. Think of him. There are some profound and practical ways that we see Jesus' lack of prejudice in this text. While we are all like the woman in this text, there are things we can learn about how Jesus engages with this woman as we seek to become more like him and less like the patterns of this world. Rather than a set of steps or things to do, I think this is a helpful way to look at how Jesus' beautiful identity, I mean ability, to see past prejudices is manifested in this instance as we pray and seek to form his character in our lives. When Jesus chooses to travel a particular route, stops at a well, sends all his disciples away to get food so that he can be alone with her and start a conversation, just purposefully seeks her out and chooses her over his reputation. Two, he starts with a simple confession of his personal need for a drink of water. The divine and sinless Jesus starts a conversation with someone whose society says is so below Jews that you shouldn't even talk to them by stating his physical limitation, his need. It is so open, so natural, so vulnerable 
so incredibly unexpected and refreshing that it must have completely caught her off guard. Three, he asks to share his, her vessel. In verse 9, it says, For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. The word for dealings there translates to, no, to common use of things. Jews have no common use of things with Samaritans. This request was a radical act that broke the rules of the time. Jesus was saying, there is no divide between us that I cannot cross. The meaning of this should be clear to us in South Africa with our history of the Separate Amenities Act, which enforced segregation of all public facilities, including buildings, in order to limit the contact between different races. It also stated that these facilities didn't need to be equal. It is as if Jesus was a white man during apartheid South Africa, speaking to a black woman while moving through a public building and choosing to walk with her through the black-only entrance, to sit with her on the black-only bench, to share the amenities that were supposed to be separate and inferior in order to keep speaking with her and build a relationship with her. Four, Jesus' only response to her shock at his defiance of social norms is telling her what he could give her and what she should be asking him living water. And then he moves on to her need and his ability to satisfy it, which is then the focus of the rest of the conversation. Five, he doesn't ignore the sin in her life. He points it out. Jesus is radical in how he contradicts the cultural norms of how she is treated in society, but it does not stop him from confronting the sin that is in her life. He really desires her sanctification. A true worshiper. While Jesus knows exactly who she is and the things she's done, he can't use these things to define, or the way that society sees her to define her or describe her. Instead, he tells her that the Father is looking for true worshippers. Where the market and interaction with stall owners to get food, her public life. I can't actually imagine how used to being rejected she was. Maybe she really wanted each one of her marriages to work out. Maybe she had real hope at each of her wedding days, thinking this is the right person for me, we'll have a family together, grow old together. Several commentators say the fact that she was carrying her own water from the well meant that she wasn't wealthy enough to have initiated any divorces. We don't even know if she was divorced or widowed, but we know that she tried to start again five times. Calluses are thick, hardened layers, layers of skin that develop when your skin tries to protect itself from repeated friction or injury. When I think of this woman, I think of a calloused skin that protects her inner world, and yet Jesus comes close to her, skin from repeated hurt. Whether it's the hurt of other people rejecting you or of other people disappointing you, maybe you felt outside, unaccepted or spare, different or speak different, Maybe it's because of how you were raised or where you come from. Maybe your hurt is from, at, from some failed attempt at fulfillment. Your career, a relationship, a financial goal. The beautiful truth of this story is that Jesus has been the person that men hide their faces from. It's the scripture that Don read, um, Isaiah 53 verse 3. He has been the person that men turn away from, that men reject. He understands what it's like, and he does not turn his face away from you. He turns it towards you. He goes out of his way to reach you and opens up a real conversation about the real internal you. 
Jesus is not interested in how people see us. He seeks us out, however scandalous the location of our hearts, and leans in towards us to offer us new life. The question is whether we'll be able to let him into our internal world, past all our defenses. My second point is that Jesus brings us close to the Father. Jesus comes close to us, and Jesus brings us close to the Father. After she's been confronted with the realization that Jesus knows all her sins, she asks another question, going back to the differences between Jews and Samaritans. I think in some way she's trying to understand what is true about God, but I also think she's trying to pull Jesus' attention away from her messy internal world, back to the world of traditions, the external world of divisions. She asks, where is the place that people should worship from? Jesus' answer is amazing. He says, soon you will worship the Father in neither the Jewish place nor the Samaritan place of worship. Soon neither tradition will be able to take you where you need to be to worship the Father. The rest of his answer is not about where we worship, but who and how we worship. He uses the word the Father three times in three verses from verse 21 to 23. You will worship the Father. True worship will worship Worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. The Father is seeking such people. ...of the Old Testament, which is the only part of the Bible that Samaritans believed and read. This means that Jews would have been much more familiar with the idea of God as Father than Samaritans. Jesus intentionally uses the word Father, knowing she would have been unfamiliar with this relationship with God. John Piper says that he is confronting her with a question indirectly. Is she a child of the Father? Verse 22, he answers this by saying, You do not know who you worship, or you do not know the Father. Salvation, that is Jesus, comes from the Jews. To us, the readers of John, the question of who are the children of God should take us back to John 1, um, 12, which says, To all who did receive him, Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Be the children of God, we must receive Jesus. To worship the Father, we must be in Christ. The cultural question of where to worship was asking, where is the holiest site? Is it the Jerusalem temple or Mount Gerizim from Deuteronomy? John helps us to see that like so many other things in the law, the temple of God, the place where God meets man, the holiest site, was a precursor for the true and better temple, the true meeting place of God and man is Jesus, and the true place of worship is Jesus. In John 2 verse 19, Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it, speaking about his body. He ends with this beautiful invitation to the Samaritan woman. The Father is seeking such people to worship him. Such people, not those with the right tradition or history, not Jewish men, not the moral or the sinless, but those who are found in Christ, born of the Spirit. Jesus takes an external question about the form of worship and changes it into a much more important one. What is our relationship to the one we are worshiping? She is asking where we should be able to access and worship God, and Jesus answers, in me. In the story, Jesus is constantly using the woman's conversation about the outer world as an arrow to point to her inner spiritual world. External thirst versus internal thirst physical water versus living water, the position of our bodies in worship versus the position of our hearts. 
Even though he is constantly pointing to her spiritual thirst, she avoids this by bringing up topics about the divisions between Jews and Samaritans and the world of tradition and religion. I think this is a defense mechanism because I recognize it in myself. When we are this broken, this familiar with sin, this relationally thirsty, this used to having people turn their faces away from us, we do not want to have a conversation about the internal things, to recognize the desert in our own spirits and our need for living water. Pain often makes us unwilling to open up our hearts and examine our needs because it makes us vulnerable and exposed. If this is you tonight, if you're trying to keep Jesus at arm's length because life and your experience have made you so untrusting of everything and everyone, I ask you to see that he is not like anyone you have ever met, do you? He does not ask you to hide parts of yourself and he will not disappoint you like the water that leaves you thirsty still. He sees us, crosses boundaries to get to us, draws near to us, and offers us what we know is that we know the Father and worship him in spirit and truth. He offers new life that wells up like a spring within us, internal, born of the Spirit, positioned in Christ. From here, our response is true worship, which Callum is going to talk about now. Christ <laughs> um, results in an outward expression of worship that reaches beyond us. And I'm going to say that line a few times tonight, and I, and I think maybe there's an opportunity to to say something lighthearted or maybe just to introduce myself, but I think you know me, and I think I really feel like God is giving us a topic to wrestle with, and it's weighty for a reason. Um, and the scripture was so beautiful, and I think she did such a good job of explaining that internal position of this woman. And I really want to try now and look at um, the outward consequence of that happening internally. And if we look at the scripture which Roe um, spoke about, um, oh, thank you, Amy. Immediately afterwards, she goes and shares the good news um, with her neighborhood. And that was the expression of her worship of this internal encounter. Um, so um, I think if, as I look out at this audience, I, I see a lot of friends, a lot of people that I know in your lives, and, and you know us, and you know our story, and that's so cool. Um, but I'm struck by Jesus' ability. To, and if we look at like the Sermon of the Mount, there's, there's a sermon there that's broad strokes. And then and compare that to some of these encounters with just a man or a woman, a Jew or a Gentile. And there's this nuanced application where he applies the gospel with delicate detail to the situation. And he knows the person who he's talking to. At the leper who was reclining at the table. A woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, a costly flask, and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves in gold is her, but Jesus... Oh, oh, oh. Okay. Um, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me, for you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me anointed my body beforehand for burial, and truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And, and I'm sure you'll agree that this is an incredibly impactful moment 
I feel, in the ministry of Christ. And, and, and there's so much to unpack here. Get two points of application for us. Um, so firstly, a little bit of context. The time frame here is Lazarus has just been resurrected from the dead. And um, there was a little bit of like, angst and stuff going on there with the crowd to the point that Jesus actually needed to move quite fast from that place. And then after this event is the, sorry, use that other hand, crucifixion, okay? So this is kind of like in between. And, um, um, and so we see Mary Magdalene as the lady who's pouring the ointment and Martha, her sister, who are both sisters of Lazarus who's been raised from the dead, okay? And then Judas is the guy who's complaining about the waste of value or the waste of money. And so I just want you to imagine for a moment this atmosphere. Um, you know, Jesus is there. Lazarus has been raised from the dead. He's sitting there with them. Mary and Martha are, have seized a moment to celebrate Christ because Mary knows that something is about to happen. And, and this is key. Um, in terms of one of the disciples was actually starting to understand what Christ has been saying the whole time. Um, and this, I did a little bit of research. Uh, the nard or the fragrance was valued at around $12,000. So we're looking at a, a deposit on a house. Um, so rand value, about 170,000 rand. Um, and then we also see in John 12 that Judas's response was stark. And you see, Judas had been, um, I'm getting ahead of myself here, but Judas had been essentially preaching with the team. He had been casting out demons in the name of Jesus. And this is the first moment where we see that there was something of an underlying desire and deceit that um, peaks its head up. And um, so he couldn't understand why this waste was happening. Um, and he had also been stealing money um, from the ministry funds that had been sent through um, to the disciples. And so we have really different responses happening in this one moment. Mary um, is pouring out a house deposit to anoint Christ's body. And he uses the facade of, we could have given this to the poor. So I'm going to look at three um, main ideas here. And... <clears throat> The first one is that Mary's worship was a result of consistently re-encountering Christ and surrendering her heart to him. And I think we've heard a lot of encounters, and for me this was really interesting because it was a re-encounter. And she was re-encountering consistently. She had been following him. Um, and there's this incredible moment of being sacrificially lavish um, with what she had to show her worship to Christ. And um, Mary had been encountering him as a friend. And, faith, and her, we're seeing her as one of the first people that knows that actually when Jesus has been talking about his death, it's real. And, she's about, and he's about to be crucified. And so there's an incredibly planned and measured and prepared moment where she anoints her Savior. Um, the second main idea is that when we encounter Christ, our value system is not only changed, it's upended. It's almost recomposed. <laughs> and um, it's actually very difficult to understand. And I think I was, 
I was trying to put this into a sentence, but I think it's something that God reveals to us as we journey along. Um, but our value system shifts from a self-preservation framework to an outward expression of love that is in alignment with God's design for how life be. And the irony here is we think it's unsustainable, but it's not. It's sustainable because that's how God designed us. Love your God with all your heart and with all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Judas looked at the financial value here at this particular moment, and as a result of this false value system that was operating in him, um, he ended up selling Christ for 30 pieces of silver. He sold Christ for money, and that worth is around $200. 2,800 rand is what he sold Christ for. 1,800 rand. And Mary anointed the same body with 170,000 rands worth of perfume. It looks like an irrational moment of generosity, but if we look closer, it's a deeply calculated and planned for intentional, considered act of love and faith as a result of a shifted value system over time. And as we consistently re-encounter Christ, our value system shifts over time. And um, value on an eternity with Christ. When you put an eternity with Christ on a scale, nothing else can't balance it out with absolutely anything. There is no unit of measurement to quantify this. And I think Mary saw that. Mary looked at Jesus and she said, you are my everything. There is nothing that I have that quantifies the value that I see in you. And I know what's going to happen. And right now, this is worthy. You are worthy of my worship. To get this perfume, this wasn't just a one-sort thing that was lying around. Response and to worship Christ. And I think we can dig into that a bit, um, but I just want to put that in your head to think about and to stew on as we carry on. She knew who Christ was and what he was about to do. She got it. She, she was starting to get the gospel. My third and last main idea is that Christ takes your worship, he rewards it, and he catalyzes it beyond what you can see. Something that would be written about and preached in halls just like this thousands of years later to millions of Christ followers, and she didn't know a thing. Um, for Mary, it was purely a sacrificial expression of worship at that particular point, and then God used it in ways that she couldn't dream about. So God wants to use your immeasurable, seemingly nonsensical, but intentional acts of worship in ways that you can't comprehend they will go beyond you. They will live beyond you, just like good work. Our inward encounter with Christ results in an outward expression of worship that reaches beyond us. And as I, I, I think of our context as uh, in a pandemic, and I believe the answer is in part of what we're speaking about, it's to do with our worship. Our expression of worship, instantly re-encountering him. And, and I don't know about you, but for me, this happens a lot. Like sometimes my head and my heart is filled with everything that is actually not of Jesus. And I need to take time out. I need to do what I normally do. And that's find a park 
Sometimes it's in my lunch break, it's a Saturday morning, um, and I need to just go and walk and be with Christ in the garden somewhere. Um, and, you, and everyone would probably have their own different things, but this is mine. And just to process my week with him, it's like, actually, Lord, I want you to, to be in my week right now. And I'm going to lament if I need to lament. I'm going to cry out to you if there are things that I don't understand. And I'm also going to thank you for the things that you've blessed me with. And, and I think most importantly is these are moments of allowing oneself to be captured by the beauty of Christ. Because beauty is an amazing thing as it, it forces you to stop looking inward and you get captured by something other than yourself in the beholder of that beauty moment for me of when I re-encounter Christ um, and then spending time in his scripture and again seeing his beauty seeing those stories memorizing the words um, Francis Chan who I always call Francois Chan I don't know why it's Afrikaans spelling um, <laughs> um, says that out of the most beautiful moments in his life his wedding day, the, holding his newborn child in his hand for the first time, um, encountering God's presence and having his questions answered or having his prayers answered. And I think that's a significant statement. Um, on my last and important point of application, which lends itself to that question of being a Christian in us, to pour ourselves into what he is revealing to us as our external expressions of worship, the of Christ. You see, he's placed you here for such a time as this, and that's exciting. Um, our expression of worship should reach deep and affect every single relationship that we have. It should affect the way that we relate to everyone and everything, and... Um, the reality is that it's, it's up to us as individuals to see the nuanced application of how this applies to our lives. What does my internal encounter of Christ look like and, and how does that result in an external expression of worship? What does that look like in your workplace, in your careers? How does that inform everything that you do in your day-to-day -day lives? And so I want to ask us maybe just, I mean, if I look at myself, um, as, as a business owner, I think my conviction of the gospel dictates how and when do I hire someone and how and why not? And how do we design ethical products? Or um, what type of jobs do we accept? What type of money do we accept? And what type of jobs and money do we reject? And I think my answer to those specific moments, I have to dig deep in the scripture and my relationship with Christ to walk with him and find that application. And the beauty is that everyone in this room has a completely different vocation, a unique relationship with Christ and a unique calling. And my encouragement is to dig deep and to find those answers to your questions in your specific position. Um, so how does Christ call the economist to assess and make recommendations for a market? does Christ call the doctor to play a role in implementing reforms in a hospital or build relationships with teams they don't agree with? How does Christ call the teacher to deal with things that they might not think is fair in their school? Um, how does God call the architect to redesign the spaces that were originally structured for separation in our country? 
because Gentiles were being separated from Jews and had no access to worship God in the way that the Jews could. They were essentially the unholy versus the holy. And how, how similar is that to our context? Um, and, and this is the antithesis of the mandate of Christ in the gospel because his mandate is to reconcile and to redeem, to, to reconcile man to God and reconcile man to man and everything in between and to restore creation as to how it was originally intended and designed to bring harmony, shalom. So, friends, as, as Christians in South Africa, we have to know our audience, we have to know our context um, and if we want to apply the gospel effectively um, to a South African climate, we have to know a people to love a people. You see, I believe the answer to how to follow Christ in South Africa in a pandemic lies in our worship. We use the term lifestyle a lot, but I think when we swap the words around a little bit and we call it a style of life, it brings a more honest weight to what we're actually referring to. You see, our style of life can either perpetuate separation in all its forms, economic, spiritual, social, environmental, or it can reconcile and redeem what is around us. It can reconcile and redeem the broken. And you see, the gospel is reconciliation. And I think sometimes we can Get, and, and myself included, we can get caught up in this idea that I'll play my part and they'll play their part. And unfortunately, I think that results in lukewarm Christianity because actually God has given you a mandate and you don't really know your part until you find that from him. And there's a role that Jesus has called you to play and it always involves some form of reconciliation and redemption and where he's placed you that we've been given. Everyone's been given such a different toolkit um, that God has given you. And so in this pandemic, I, I quote a friend of mine, Jean-Luc, um, who said something to me that is just stuck. And he said, the world seems to be in a malleable state. And then I added, and if there was ever a time for reform, it's now. If there's ever a time for like the gospel to deeply shape the way things work and run, it's now. How do we as individuals contribute to reconciliation in our various industries or vocation? The answer is too broad. And so it doesn't exist, you know, just in one particular scripture or in one maybe doctrine or education or one person. But um, the answer lies waiting to be found in your personal relationship and journey with Christ. Um, and that's a part of how he, of how God wants you to get to know him through finding this out. Um, you see, it's our responsibility to take our talents, not to bury them in the ground and to use all of them. Um, seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. And your worship and style of life will change hearts. It will change lives. Um, and you might not even get to see it. Just like Mary, it will go beyond you. Just as we close, um, I'd like us to just look at the cross for a second. A moment of loving sacrifice. But when we look closer, we see a calculated, measured, and considered act of reconciliatory love. You see, Mary knew what she was doing by anointing the body of Christ. And Jesus knew what he was doing by dying on the cross. People who were killing him. You see, 
Jesus is your friend, he's your father, and he's your king. And when you pour out your lives in a sacrificial form of surrendered worship to what he's calling you to do, he will reward you and use your worship beyond your imagination. And he will use your worship to change people's hearts and minds. And your acts and your style of life will live beyond you. And I I think God is calling us, you and me as South Africans, um, to some beautiful sacrificial moments and lifestyles. And when those days come, pour out what God has given you. Be ready, be considered. Your inward encounter with Christ will result in an outward expression of worship that will reach beyond you in South Africa. If you wouldn't mind coming up at this point, and we can play that um, um, song by We Will Worship. Um, That whatever you feel prompting in your heart that, that you would actually respond now, that you would allow, as Ro talked about, that you would allow Christ into your internal world. If there are calloused areas, that you would allow him there. And um, I think there's probably four groups of people right now um, to their life. There may have been opportunities, but actually you've kept Christ at arm's length. You've, you've kept him separated, and he's wanting to reach out to you. He's wanting to give you that living water to reveal that actually there's been a desert inside and you're so thirsty, but he has the water to quench that thirst. Um, And if this is you, I encourage you just to pray, to simply surrender yourself and your heart and to allow God to speak to you. Um, And then speak to one of us, speak to me or Ro or Grant or Shell, any worship leaders or um, life group leaders and we'd love to walk with you through this beautiful process. Secondly, I think that there are Christians that have been hurt um, in their walk with the Lord. Maybe it's the church, maybe it's people, but you've developed callous skins in different areas in your heart. And actually, Jesus wants to come and bring healing there. Um, and he wants, you, he wants to open those wounds um, and give you that living water. So some of you might need to pray right now and just articulate that hurt and to lament. Um, Because he is faithful to hear, to heal, and to turn our lives into true worship. And then thirdly, I think some of us have been following Jesus for a long time. Um, But if you look at your the way that you live, you would not say that is characterized by radical worship. And you might feel that there's been a dullness that has come as a consequence. And I feel like now is just an opportunity to stare into the beauty of Christ um, and to re-encounter Him again. Um, And then lastly, and me and Ro say that we we find ourselves in this group. Um, The last call is to some of us who have recognized patterns of this world imprint themselves in our heart. There are patterns of this world that are now in our hearts and we need transformation there. We need to look more like Christ. And um, maybe there are remnants of of prejudice um, against certain people that still sits in your heart. Or maybe there's a style of life that you're living that is characterized by financial security rather than a radical worship. We fall into this group, so... um, 
I'm just going to ask Ro to come and pray that Christ would just challenge the parts of our hearts um, that need to be challenged and also to bring about his grace and his peace that we've seen him do. Jesus, thank you that you come close to us, um, that you know us as we stand here before you. Thank you that as we read your word, we can see that we have sinned and fallen short of your glory, and we can ask you for help, Christ. Um, I pray that as we as we sing together the song of what it means to worship you, um, how we worship you, I pray that you would meet us, that you would speak to us, and that you would go with us um, as we continue to walk with you, or as we start our walk with you, and we seek your face. In your name, amen. Thank you.